Welcome to Saturday Evening Torah Class, an in-depth interdisciplinary study of the Hebrew Scriptures. Tonight's lesson is week number 7, Deuteronomy chapter 5. Well, you know, we're now about 80% of the way through the Torah. And we have absorbed an enormous amount of detail. And as... We begin our study of Deuteronomy chapter 5 today. Let's pause for just a few minutes to kind of gather our thoughts and gain some perspective. Allow me to take just a few minutes to draw a picture of some of the foundational premises of Deuteronomy that we're expected to keep in mind at all times when we're studying this great book and, of course, the Bible in general. First of all, the context of Deuteronomy is that the laws being given to Israel, originally given at Mount Sinai and now being repeated and expounded upon to some degree here in Moab, are from Yehovah, God of Israel. This notion of a set of laws coming from God sounds kind of simple and easy for us to accept. But just as there being but one God in existence was totally new, a totally new concept to the world and to Israel, so it was equally as revolutionary that a God, instead of that nation's king, would establish the laws and rules that governed any particular human society. Up to this point in history, it had always been that a human king whose prerogative it was to declare what was right, what was wrong, what was legal, what was criminal, would do so. But now, for Israel, the common understanding of the source of societal laws would forever change. Second of all, an additional context for Deuteronomy is that those to whom Moses is about to repeat these laws laws beginning with the first series of ten laws that we call the Ten Commandments, these people that are standing before him were not present, except maybe a few of them when they were very young children, when the law was first given almost 40 years earlier because that first generation of the Exodus who had witnessed the awe of it all were now dead and gone. And apparently they hadn't done a very good job of passing along the teaching as they should have. Third, we will notice as we move along in these coming chapters some slight variations in how these laws are to be viewed and applied at this point in Israel's journey versus how they were to be viewed and employed 40 years earlier at the beginning of the wilderness journey. This is because the era of living in portable tents, eating manna that's been rained down from heaven each and every day without fail, and moving from oasis to oasis, this was essentially coming to an end. Okay. Therefore, Moses had to explain just how Israel was to observe these same laws and commandments since Israel was about to become a settled, sedentary people. And they were going to stop living as a massive population of wandering Bedouins. So the context of their existence was changing for Israel. So Moses had to reframe some things. But the reframing at all times stayed within the boundaries of the law as given on Mount Sinai. Now, this is a great principle that's been almost lost to us. It's been a common practice within Christianity to disregard the circumstances and the time frame and the cultural norms of the Bible era, and rather to say that the words of the Bible have this mystical quality, such that the thousands of verses and paragraphs it comprises can be severed away from their historical context and made to stand alone in any era. Let me give you a brief example of what I'm getting at. 
Here we are meeting today in Florida, in the United States, the bastion of Western culture. We're in the year 2009. Our attention is focused on the controversial Iraq war, the never-ending unrest that revolves around Israel, and a global financial crisis that has thrown millions out of their jobs and homes. Islamic fascism is attempting to reassert itself on a global level. Our economy and our national security dominate our every thought. And if one is a Christian fundamentalist, your faith is under attack. And now you are considered a threat to our government's goals. And you likely are pretty certain that we are in the final days of human history and that what is going on around us is but the playing out of predetermined and inalterable prophetic events. Nearly half of our churches now deny the deity of Christ. About one-fourth of American churches believe in gay marriages and in ordaining homosexuals as pastors and bishops. Violence is increasing at every level of our society to unheard of levels, and what would have been considered X-rated programs and pornography 20 years ago are now common fare on primetime TV. Our American society is primarily in Eng- is English-speaking, but increasingly Spanish has become a common second language. Some want Spanish to become acceptable as an officially sanctioned alternative language of the U.S., while others vehemently insist that English remainers are one and only common national tongue, and to undermine that would undermine our very social fabric. Our nation is approximately evenly divided between politically liberal and politically conservative-minded people, and the middle ground has all but disappeared. This is the all-important historical context for the time in which we live. This is the context from which all of our daily dialogue takes place. This context is unique for our time. It's not existed before. And it will change as time moves along, into what we don't know. The point is that when our president gives a speech, a new book is written about some major event or issue of our era, a preacher speaks to us about how to apply scripture to our lives. If you are an American living in Florida in the year 2009, all that I've just stated about what our current circumstances are is the contextual given for that speech or that book or that sermon. The speaker or author doesn't need to reiterate all of these circumstances that defines our era because it's common knowledge to us. We live it every day. But if one's living in England, or Turkey, or Mexico, or Russia, the context is quite different. And when a leader in any of those places speaks, he or she does so in the context relative to their culture and their circumstances. Our American context is not only largely irrelevant to them, it's not even comprehensible to their minds, unless they're somehow educated and familiarized and brought up to date about American values and language and history and interests. See, it's no different with the Bible. This is why I spend so much time in Torah class reminding you of that reality and painting a picture as we go of the geography, the language evolution, what people were thinking and what they were concerned about, what certain words and phrases meant to them at that time, what the major issues and challenges of their times were. What was taken... For unchallenged common knowledge then, and what was completely unknown to them yet. But just as it is with us today, society in the days of the Bible at any given moment in time was anything but uniform and monolithic. Everybody wasn't the same, nor were they all living under identical circumstances. Therefore, for example, in the New Testament, we'll have Paul speaking to pagan Gentiles in one of the new and progressive Roman cities using terms and illustrations they're familiar with. 
He'll speak to the Gentiles in Greek, the language they used. When he ventured back to the Holy Lands, he would speak to the unique culture of the Jews and the entirely different Jewish society, incalculably separate from the Roman world, within the context of their understanding. And that, that context varied from Galilee to Samaria to Judea. So he would speak to the various Jewish groups about issues and in terms that were concern, concerning for them. He'd speak to them in Hebrew and Aramaic, the language of the Jews living within the Holy Land. Had Paul spoken to the Romans using Jewish cultural and religious terms, they would have been clueless as to what he was talking about and probably pretty offended as well. Had he spoken to the Jews in Roman cultural terms, the Jews would have turned their backs on him and walked away, or as we read happened on not just a few occasions, run him out of town. You see, the world does not now, and it never has, consisted of a generic people living in one big generic society under generic circumstances speaking a single generic language. Okay. Rather, we can only gain any meaningful information from the biblical texts, Old Testament or New, whether it be from Paul or Jesus or Moses, when we take it all inside the historical and cultural context it occurred. And then, in the ordinary sense it was meant at that time, reapply it to our new global, national, and local circumstances. Therefore, since Deuteronomy 5 is primarily a restatement of the original Ten Commandments as given 40 years earlier, let us take careful note that a lot of times passed. An entire generation has died out. And the context is substantially different now from when it was first declared. It's about 1300 B.C. Abraham has been dead now for about 500 years. Moses is but days from his death. A new leader has been readied to replace him. He's standing on a hill in Moab. He's addressing that young generation of eager warriors who are about to engage in holy war upon Canaan. The law is well established. It's been practiced now for 40 years. The priesthood is fully functioning. The wilderness tabernacle is the recognized dwelling place of God on earth. And Joshua has been introduced as Moses' successor. Israel is currently a racially mixed nation of about 3 million people consisting of full-blooded Hebrews, foreigners of several races who have officially joined Israel, half-breeds, the result of intermarriage with these foreigners, and of non-Hebrew slaves. Thousands of aliens camp on the outskirts of this enormous Israelite encampment because those aliens have chosen to be friends with Israel, but they don't want to join them. All right, as part of a, as being part of a Hebrew nation, Moses is speaking to all of these people, all of them, not just to some. Even though those who are actually hearing his voice are mostly the people's representatives, the tribal elders, the chieftains. With that as a backdrop, now let's read Deuteronomy chapter five. Deuteronomy chapter 5, page 202 in the Complete Jewish Bible. Then Moshe called to all of Israel and said to them, Listen, Israel, to the laws and rulings which I am announcing in your hearing today, so that you will learn and take care to obey them. Adonai our God made a covenant with us at Horeb. Adonai did not make this covenant with our fathers, but with us. With us, who are all of us here alive today. Adonai spoke with you face to face from the fire 
on the mountain. At that time, I stood between Adonai and you in order to tell you what Adonai was saying, because on account of the fire, you were afraid. You wouldn't go up onto that mountain. And he said, I am Adonai, your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, where you lived as slaves. You are to have no other gods before me. You are not to make for yourselves a carved image or any kind of representation of anything in heaven above, on the earth beneath, in the water below the shoreline. You are not to bow down to them or serve them, for I, Adonai, your God, am a jealous God, punishing the children for the sins of their parents. Also the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but displaying grace to the thousandth generation of those who love me and Obey my commands. You're not to misuse the name of Adonai your God because Adonai will not leave unpunished someone who misuses his name. Observe the day of Shabbat. Set it apart as holy. As Adonai your God ordered you to, you have six days to labor and do all your work. But the seventh day is a Shabbat for Adonai your God. On it you are not to do any kind of work. Not you. Your son, your daughter, your male or female slave, not your ox, your donkey, any of your other livestock. Not the foreigner staying with you inside the gates to your property. So that your male and female servants can rest, just as you do. You are to remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt, and Adonai your God brought you out from there with a strong hand, an outstretched arm. Therefore, Adonai your God has ordered you to keep the day of Shabbat. Honor your father and mother as Adonai your God ordered you to do so that you will live long and have things go well with you in the land Adonai your God is giving you. Do not murder. Do not commit adultery. Do not steal. Do not give false evidence against your neighbor. Do not covet your neighbor's wife. Do not covet your neighbor's house, his field, his male or female slave, his ox, his donkey, anything that belongs to your neighbor. These words, Adonai, spoke to your entire gathering at the mountain from fire, cloud, a thick mist, and a loud voice, and then it ceased. But he wrote them on two stone tablets, which he gave to me. When you heard the voice coming out of the darkness as the mountain blazed with fire, you came to me, all the heads of your tribes and your leaders, and said, Here, Adonai our God has shown us his glory and his greatness. We have heard his voice coming from the fire. We have seen today that God does speak with human beings, and they stay alive. But why should we keep risking death? This great fire will consume us. If we hear the voice of Adonai our God anymore, we will die. For who is there of all humanity that has heard the voice of the living God speaking from the fire as we have and stayed alive? You go near, hear everything God, Adonai our God says. Then you tell us everything Adonai our God says to you and we'll listen to it and do it. Adonai heard what you were saying when you spoke to me and Adonai said to me, I have heard what this people has said when speaking to you and everything they have said is good. Oh, how I wish their hearts would stay like this always, that they would fear me and obey all my mitzvot, so that it would go well with them and their children forever. Go, tell them to return to their tents. But you, stand here by me. I will tell you all the commands, laws, and rulings which you're to teach them, so that they can obey them in the land that I am giving them as their possession. Therefore, you are to be careful to do as Adonai your God has ordered you. You're not to deviate either to the right or to the left. You're to follow the entire way which Adonai your God has ordered you so that you will live. Things will go well with you and you will live long in the land you are about to possess. We find in this chapter that Moses is reestablishing the basis for claiming that he is the sole and unique mediator between God and Israel. That is, he is saying bluntly, these are the rules that I, Moses, proclaim to you in verse 1. 
Okay, But then he goes on to make it clear that he's just repeating to them what the Lord told him and what many of them personally heard as children from a frightening and thundering voice from above. Moses is also reestablishing a basis to this new generation for why Yehovah is and should be Israel's God and that their loyalty is to be only to Yehovah. And the reason that Israel should obey and worship Yehovah is stated in the first commandment that is contained in verse 6. I am Yehovah, your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt. Now I remind you that while it came to be the norm over the centuries to ignore the original first commandment, I am Yehovah, your God, and then to take the second commandment and break it apart and make two commandments out of it okay, so that there was an appearance of ten and not nine commandments, that this is a significant error that has had a lot to do with Christianity's historic bent to disinherit the Jewish people of their rightful place as God's favored people. It has also led to such an arrogant attitude of the church towards Israel that the very people to whom God's word was entrusted, the Hebrews, now feel totally alienated from their own Jewish Messiah. They have been thoroughly convinced by Christians that if they should believe upon Yeshua that it would be tantamount to accepting a Gentile religion validating the church position that the Jews have now been rejected by the Lord and replaced with Gentiles, and thereby they would be turning their backs on their special position given to them as his set-apart people. So says Moses, the reason Israel should look to Yehovah and Yehovah alone is because it is Yehovah and not some other God that rescued Israel from Egypt through never-before-seen Signs and wonders. Further, it's now been established that it is folly to bow down to other gods because they don't even exist. They're false gods, not in the sense that Jehovah is the better God, but rather in the sense that they are but figments of men's foolish and evil inclinations that so easily accept elemental spirits and a myriad of created objects as gods or things that ought to be worshipped. We studied the so-called Ten Commandments in great detail when we examined Exodus 20 quite quite some time ago now. So we're not going to go into detail as those same commandments are but reiterated here in Deuteronomy 5. Instead, I'm only going to highlight the main points or indicate places and the wording of Deuteronomy 5 that differs ever so slightly from Exodus 20. From a panoramic viewpoint, we see that the Ten Commandments, the Ten Guiding Principles of the 603 laws that are going to follow it, that they're divided into two obvious groupings. The first four commandments speak of a man's obligations to God. And the remaining six concern relationships among and between our fellow men. Please note something that I hope has become or is becoming apparent. Nowhere in the Ten Commandments or anywhere in the law for that matter does the issue of salvation as we think of it today come up. The law doesn't deal with it because that was never its primary focus. And despite what you might have been told, the the Hebrews did not look to the law for salvation because it wasn't there and they didn't think it was there. So when we see Paul explaining that the law was not able to save, he was simply telling his uninitiated Gentile listeners not to go seeking out the law as an alternative to do what only the Messiah could do. Since Christ was a Jew and was only within the religion and covenants of the Jews that the advent of a Messiah had any meaning at all, 
then it was the natural assumption of these converted Gentiles to want to mimic what the Jews did, obey the outward rituals of the law. The problem is that Paul knew that if they were not taught otherwise, the Gentiles would mistakenly think that it was those acts and behaviors that brought them their salvation. And when Paul was saying similar things to the Jews, he was simply telling these Hebrews that while obedience to the law was good and important, the Messiah was doing something that obedience to the law could never do. It's not that in the New Testament we have Paul or Jesus or any other writer saying that Christians should be antinomian. A 50 cent word meaning against law. Anti-law. Rather it was that they should take advantage of Christ's ministry for salvation rather than mistakenly assume that there was an option B which was to obey a series of rules and laws in order to accomplish that same thing. Look, when we come to Christ, we don't stop eating food. We don't stop learning scripture. Eating food doesn't bring us salvation, but that doesn't make eating a bad thing. Learning scripture doesn't earn us salvation, But studying the word isn't outdated and unnecessary once we have our salvation. Rather, each of these acts has an ongoing purpose. We eat because our physical bodies require nourishment. We read scripture so that once we have been redeemed by faith in Yeshua, we give our minds and our souls spiritual nourishment. And so that we know what our expected response to God's grace and favor towards us ought to be. Christ says he's the bread of life. But no one would take seriously that that meant as saved people we no longer needed to eat food. He also says the Torah will be written on our hearts. That that in no way meant that we are to stop learning God's laws from his written word. In the same way, when we in faith accept Yeshua as our Savior, we don't now turn against the very rules and ordinances that the Lord set up to demonstrate His character and instruct us on how to live this redeemed life. Well, the second commandment is restated in verses 8 through 10. It makes it clear that Israel is not to attempt to establish a relationship with any other God. That's pretty straightforward. I'm not going to comment further on that. But what I do want to point out is the relationship nature of the covenant of Moses between God and man. I talked last week about this unscriptural, false dichotomy that has been set up in modern Christianity that demands that we see the Old Testament as about the establishment of a legal code and the New Testament as introducing grace into the world. Part and parcel to this is the typical outlook that the Old Testament was set up as a dictator king giving out impersonal orders that had to be obeyed or else And alternatively, that the New Testament is all about a relationship between God and man that sets no obligations upon us once we're saved. You know, we've all heard pastors correctly say that Christianity is not a religion, it's a relationship. Well, that exact same thing was true from the beginning. It is a fundamental biblical axiom that the covenants between God and man are all relationship-based. Therefore, we get the relationship formula in Old Testament phrases like, I will take you to be my people, and I will be your God. There's a relationship. I will be your God, you shall be my people. Notice the equation. God says, this is what I'll be for you, and consequently, this is what you'll be for me. 
And that while God offers this prospect of a harmonious relationship, it's up to each and every one of us to accept it or reject it. That is the very definition of a relationship. It has the same basis to it as our human marriage vows that were, by the way, always meant to be a physical and visible illustration of our spiritual and invisible relationship with the Lord. Notice that in a marriage ceremony, the question is asked to the bride, will you take this man to be your husband? And to the bridegroom, will you take this woman to be your wife? Both sides agree to freely enter into this relationship. In the case of God establishing that Israel will be his people and in return he will be their God, and in the case of human marriage, both parties must agree. Both parties have obligations. Both parties have legal standing. If the Lord only said, I'll be your God, and you have no choice in the matter, then the quid pro quo is missing, and there's no relationship, it's just servitude. If at a marriage ceremony the man declared, you're my wife, but the woman wasn't asked if she wanted to be married to this man, there's no relationship, there's just subjugation. The third commandment is that the Lord's name is not to be misused. I think this is one of the most mischaracterized commandments of the ten. This command is primarily about one thing. Not invoking the name of God as surety in an oath. That is either false or on its face or one that you have no intention of keeping. This modern idea of an accidental mispronunciation of his formal name as the point of this commandment or that we're to refrain altogether from saying his holy name has no scriptural ground. The Talmud makes it clear, the Talmud makes it clear that this prohibition that the Jews eventually adopted starting about 300 B.C. of not uttering the holy name had nothing to do with the third commandment. It says it straight out. Rather, it came to be considered a matter of proper reverence. There are various reasons stated in the Talmud, also in writings by Philo and by Josephus, as to why it came to be considered irreverent to say God's formal name. And while there is no single reason definitively stated, in general it had to do with a Middle Eastern custom that developed around that time, right? that it was not respectful for a son or a daughter to pronounce their parents' names. By extension, that got carried over to the Lord's name because the Lord was recognized as Abba, the Hebrew's heavenly father. Now let me state in fact, emphatically, what I'm telling you is not my opinion, it's just history. It's recorded. All right, in Jewish documents for anyone who has the time or interest to find it and read it for yourself. Okay. In ancient times, the invoking of vows and oaths were common events. Okay. By definition, a vow or an oath involved the use of the name of one god, god or another. If, god's, if a god's name wasn't invoked, there was no oath. It wasn't legally binding. The primary intent of the third commandment is that the Lord's name is not to be invoked carelessly or frivolously when making vows and oaths. And in later books of the Old Testament and in even later New Testament writings, advice is given that all in all, it's just better not to make vows and oaths at all. Alright? Wherever possible. Because if a person does invoke God's name in a vow or an oath, the Lord fully expects the terms to be completed regardless of the content or the intent. You know, one of the most infamous stories in the Bible that you probably all 
remember, is of a fellow named Jephthah who made his own daughter a burnt sacrifice due to a rash vow he had made to God, not expecting this horror as a result. And by the way, it was a vow for which Jephthah approached the Lord and set the terms. The Lord certainly didn't ask for, and he doesn't condone a human life as a sacrifice to him. Well, the fourth commandment is to observe the Sabbath day. Now, I've flogged you all sufficiently on this matter, so I'm not going to go into too much depth. But please note that Sabbath, or Shabbat, is the proper name of a specific day of the week. In fact, in any good translation, the wording is, observe the day Shabbat. Okay. While that is acceptable, just saying observe the Shabbat hits it more dead on. The point is that Shabbat's not just any day. It's a specific day that the Lord has ordained as holy. Two things. It is defined biblically as the seventh day of the week. Not the final day of any rolling seven-day period of our choosing. Nowhere in Scripture does it make it any other day. Further, it is the holiness of that day that is the key. The Lord has set that particular day apart from all others and made it holy. Question for you. Who makes something holy? God. Anybody else? Can you declare something to be holy? Can you take something ordinary and by the power invested in you, make it holy? How about your pastor? Of course not. Making something, anything, holy lies solely in the province of God. You know, we can't choose any day we wish and then by our own authority declare it as being holy. You know, the Sabbath is far more than a day of rest. If it were merely a day of physical rest, then certainly it would not have the holy character that Yehovah has given it. Conversely, any time we take a day off of work for whatever reason, that doesn't make it the Sabbath. The pagan world had days off. The government controlled which days that might be. They had days off to celebrate the winter and summer solstices. They had days off to celebrate the inauguration of a new king. They had days off to celebrate and worship their numerous gods. They had days off to celebrate the end of the harvest season. They were rest days, for sure. But they were not the Sabbath. The Sabbath is a weekly observance of the miracle of creation. That's what it's about. Look, it's rightly quoted that Jesus said that the Sabbath was made for man and not man for the Sabbath. But the point is not that the sole purpose of the Sabbath was so man could take a day off of work. It was so man could enjoy and refresh his relationship with God. The time off indeed is helpful for man and animal, all of his creatures, to physically rejuvenate. But mostly, it was so man could remember what the Lord has done for him by redeeming him, by creating everything around a man that sustains us. It does not do something for God that we rest It honors God that we reflect upon Him and obey Him by observing the day that He has removed from the common days of the week, set it apart, and blessed it as special. Okay, well, we've now reviewed commandments one through four that have to do with God's expectation that we as His worshipers acknowledge His name, His nature, his identity, and his holiest day. With commandment five, there's a shift to what the Lord demands now of human-to-human 
oriented relationships. And these will specifically cover the obligation of children to their parents, how one's to honor and protect the life, person, property, and reputation of our neighbors and society at large. One could reasonably say that these are the humanitarian rules set down by the Lord. The fifth commandment then is to describe our proper relationship to the most important humans in our life, our parents. Just as in Leviticus 19 where the priests are admonished to revere their parents, so do the Ten Commandments make it a duty not just for the priestly class, but for all who wish to be part of Israel to recognize that among human relationships, obligations to one's parents reign supreme. Interestingly, this command is usually used to gain the attention of school-aged kids when it comes to being obedient to their mothers and fathers. But that isn't how it was looked at during the various biblical eras. Rather, this is more about how grown children were to care for their parents when they needed it, and about how grown children were to continue to show deference to their elders. It is interesting that this issue is so high on God's list that in Leviticus 19.3, he essentially puts showing proper respect to one's parents as a human societal obligation on the same level as observing Shabbat is an obligation to him. For that verse says, you shall revere, each revere his mother and father and keep my Sabbath. Puts it all in one statement. Earthly parent, heavenly parent are to be honored and obeyed. Another interesting subtlety to note is that quite often in Scripture, the phrase used to denote one's parents is your mother and father, putting the word mother first. It's not that the intent's to put mother above father. Rather, it's to put mother and father on an equal footing in what was a very male-dominated society. Since God does not value one sex above above the other, then neither should a child put the needs of one parent above the other. They are equal in the Lord's eyes. They should be equal in the child's eyes. The rabbis fully subscribe to this view, and much is written in the Talmud to this effect. It's also interesting to note that of all the Ten Commandments, this one concerning the instruction to honor one's parents is the only one that promises a reward. It says, if you'll do this, you'll have lifelong well-being. Well, the 6th, 7th, 8th, and 9th commandments are very brief, all contained in one verse, really. The 6th commandment is that one should not rasach. Rasach. Rasach is Hebrew for murder. It does not mean to kill. One doesn't go hunting and ratsach a deer. Okay, The purpose for this commandment is very limited in scope. And it specifically means that a man is not to unjustly kill another human being. Legal executions are not a concern of this command. Death in battle is not a concern of this command. Even manslaughter, in the sense of there not being an intention to kill somebody or the death as a result of gross negligence, is not a concern of this commandment. See, the key word is unjust. And by the way, legal retribution by executing a person who has committed an unjust killing, is expected, it is demanded by the Lord. The seventh commandment is that one should not engage in adultery. Biblical adultery means consenting sexual relations between a married person and another person outside of that marriage. 
It could also mean a wife taking the side of another man against her own husband in a serious disagreement. The Middle Eastern societies of this era all generally held extramarital extramarital relations to be a very bad thing. And most of these same societies punished the perpetrator severely, usually with death. In reality, a law similar to the Seventh Commandment was quite usual and customary among most societies of that era. The Eighth Commandment is that one should not steal. And it means exactly the way we think of it today. We should not take something from somebody that doesn't belong to us. Now, some rabbis said that this commandment included kidnapping, the unlawful taking of a human being, but that's a little bit of a stretch. Rather, this is about personal property and the prohibition against someone having their property taken away from them. The ninth commandment is that one should not bear false witness against another. In our modern vocabulary, this is referring to perjury. It does not generally mean to avoid telling a lie in a conversation. Rather, this is more about making a false accusation of wrongdoing against someone that could lead to a criminal penalty. And it's about not telling the truth in a court of law that could either acquit the guilty or convict the innocent. Now, the Tenth Commandment is somewhat unique Because while all the others speak of concrete actions and outward behaviors, this one that says that a person should not covet something that belongs to somebody else is all about a state of mind. Covet means to have secret designs. To make something yours that you have no right to. So certainly... Such a state of mind could eventually be manifest into an action to wrongly acquire what's being coveted, but that's not really the point of this commandment. The first thing one's not to covet, it says, is your neighbor's wife. That is, one's not to look in lust upon a married woman and want her for your own. The next thing that is not to be craved or plans made to wrongly acquire is your neighbor's house. Let me be clear about this. It's not talking about the dwelling place. It's not about the structure. It's not about the tent or the hut or the building. House is used here as in the sense of household. The people. Okay, the extended family. I shared with you that it was the common mode of operation in most of the biblical eras for a clan or a tribe to increase their power and wealth by forcibly taking people, often in entire households. We had a direct example of this. When Jacob's sons did this exact thing, when they stayed for a while outside of Shechem, and they took people of that city in retribution for the rape of Jacob's daughter Dinah, this dramatically increased the size of Jacob's household overnight, Because the Israelites acquired entire households of people. So this is, this thing about not covering your neighbor, uh, coveting your neighbor's house, the, the, the word is household. The reiteration of the Ten Commandments is now complete and Moses reminds the people that it was these ten laws that the people heard directly from God with their own ears. The 603 laws that came afterward were given to Moses and then passed along from him to the people. Moses also reminds the people that God was willing and Moses would be perfectly happy to continue giving his Torah directly to them from his own divine voice to hear, but the fear of the Lord's awesome presence just drove the people to beg Moses to ask God to stop speaking to them. Instead, Moses, just be our mediator. Well, the next couple of verses, 25 and 26, add some interesting information. They say that God actually commends Israel for their attitude of preferring that Moses receive the law. 
to their standing in God's presence and hearing the laws from the Lord for themselves. This is important. Because the Lord didn't see Israel as weak or superstitious or unworthy to hear his voice because they trembled in fear. Rather, he saw their request to get the law through Moses as the proper response to his awesomeness and an agreement with God that Moses was his authorized mediator. Israel had gained a healthy fear and reverence for Yehovah, and as long as they retained it, and as long as they obeyed the Torah commands, then it would go well with you and your children forever, he declared. There are a couple of fundamental God principles contained in that rather innocuous statement. First, the Lord will bless greatly those who determine to show him proper respect and follow him in obedience. And second, is that a man does have a choice. Always a choice. The Lord is not going to force anyone to obey. He's not going to force anyone to come into service to Him. Generally speaking, the Lord does not control a man like a puppet. Since in verse 27, the people wanted Moses to receive the remainder of the Torah in their stead, God told Moses to just dismiss the people then and let them go home to their tents. Understand, they weren't sent away except that they had just been, they'd asked to be released. Okay. Also, they were not put under some kind of house arrest. They weren't ordered to go and stay in their tents while Moses received the law. It's just that the people were simply permitted to go back to their desert abodes and not required to stay and hang out and hear God's words anymore. And of course, along with the instructions for the people to be dismissed, Moses was told to remain where he was that the Lord could finish what he started. Well, this portion of Moses' address to the people ends with the main point of this entire sermon. It is that what must be learned and hopefully not repeated from what happened at Mount Sinai and then all the misadventures that occurred afterwards that caused the deaths of scores of thousands of Hebrews is that the Torah that Moses is in process of teaching to this new generation of Israelites must be followed. It must be obeyed. Or this new generation can expect similar consequences as to what their parents received. We'll get into chapter 6 next week.